All right. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad our church let me out tonight. Not allowed to get out much, so this is this is good. Um, also grateful for uh, the words of our brother Johnny, who was just talking about um, when things don't go right, it's okay because this is this is a time of worship that isn't necessarily a performance as much as it is a connection with the Father through Christ. So. Um, <clears throat> As, as we prepare for the Word, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I'm really thankful to Tyler when, when I was asking, what do you think I should preach on? He said, well, we're going through Mark, and whenever someone comes and guest speaks for me, I kind of guard whatever I'm teaching through, and, and like, you know, that's my little pet project. You can come in with something else. But he was just like, hey, brother, you know, we're at Mark 10. If you just want to keep going, you know, the Word's the Word, and uh, you can preach it. And so that was just, uh, I, I was very... Uh, just amazed at the humility of our, my brother that came in and said, hey, go on ahead, take it. So I would not be so easily uh, letting go with that. But here we are, Mark chapter 10. And uh, was it last week when you guys met and you finished up chapter 9? Is that what it was? And you were talking about like cutting off your hand and stuff? Yeah? Did he, did he go pretty heavy on that? Well, um, I, I was reading through the passages and... And as I was reading through, it made me think of this story back from 2003. Maybe you heard about it. There's a, there's a movie that came out. But back on April 26th, uh, 2003, a guy named Aaron Ralston was doing some rock climbing in uh, the Blue John Canyon in Utah. Uh, but it didn't work out quite right. He was uh, climbing up this slope. Handhold came off along with an 800-pound rock and pinned his arm as, as it went down into the narrow canyon, pinned his arm up against the wall. He was stuck. And after three days of strategizing how to free himself and nothing else working, he was running out of water and he had to make a choice. Either A, stay there and just kind of pass out and succumb to dehydration or lose your arm and get out with your life. Uh, he chose to lose his arm and a uh, very graphic part in the movie <laughs> uh, but, but as I was just reading this text in chapter 9, preparing for a, chapter 10 as, as we're going to be going through, I, I just couldn't get away from the eerie connection with us and sin and, and having to part from it is almost like having to part with an appendage. It, it, it feels like it's a part of us. But the reality is still the same there. If, if we don't, it's our life that we pay for it. And I think Jesus is meaning something the same as we come to chapter 10. Uh, we'll be going verses 1 through 31. I hope I can make it. If not, start throwing things at me when time's getting close. And, uh, and, and we'll, we'll try to wrap up. But uh, like I mentioned before, um, I, I just couldn't get over the, the similarity between this rock and, and Aaron and our situation. And although I know Jesus perhaps did not literally mean cut off your hand if it causes you to sin, right? Because your hand isn't what causes you to sin or your eye. It's, it's your sinful heart. Um, but, but he's speaking you know, in, with hyperbole, and he's saying, be as serious about sin as you would be if it was infecting your hand and you needed to cut it off. And uh, I just have a hard time breaking with my sin, you know, and... and, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you guys do too, you know. Uh, denying lust in your heart, resisting pride, 
uh, refusing to allow wealth or popularity to bring contentment to you. These are all things that hurt us and they humble us. But the message of, of this passage is that in Christ, it heals us too. And this is the point of the passage today. Chapter 10 falls in the midst of a larger section of Scripture in the book of Mark from 831 thereabouts to the, to the end of 10, beginning of 11. And just to, just to bring you up to speed, this is kind of what I like to do. Mark verses 1 through the middle of 8 um, is, is basically discovering who Jesus is. He comes on the scene very early, and, and, and he's doing signs and wonders, showing his power over, over sin and suffering and Satan. And, and we're discovering who is this guy on the scene. It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one from the Old Testament that was coming to set his people free. And so we were seeing these things come true before our eyes in the first part. And then, as finally we hit the middle of Mark 8, Peter makes the confession. Perhaps you've heard about it. Um, so what a lot of our confessions are based off of. He says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and so here it is, the, the crescendo of the first half of Mark. It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. He has come to fulfill his promises. And um, very quickly after that, as Peter is prone to do, he puts his foot in his mouth. Um, and, and starts assuming that he knew not just that Jesus was the Messiah, but he knew what the Messiah was going to do. And so in this passage, starting from the middle of Mark 8 to the beginning of 11 when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem, they start their journey towards Jerusalem, and Jesus says three different times in different places, we're going to Jerusalem, and, and the Son of Man is going to be uh, beaten and killed, and after three days, he's going to rise again, just like what we sang about. Although it's not just a song, it's reality, it's what happened. And so he's telling his disciples that, kind of a killer, after you've kind of had this big crescendo moment, he's the Messiah, ha, ah, you know, and then, and then it doesn't work out the way they were expecting. Jesus says, suffering precedes salvation. And, and they could not get this through their heads. We're a lot like the disciples in that way. And, and so as, as we look to our passage, as, as we look to this section in chapter 10, we see that disciples really had, had no category for a suffering Savior because they didn't yet have a category for the depth of their own sin. They didn't understand the danger they were in, the boulder they were trapped under. And so in, in 1 through 31 of chapter 10, Jesus is going to highlight three areas in which God's kingdom operates differently than our own. There's a, there's a different economy with the kingdom that Jesus is bringing from chapter 1, preaching the kingdom of God. It works differently than the way we think things work, the way things work on campus here, the way things work uh, at, back at home, the way things work in our cities and where you came from. Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God, operates differently. So let's uh, jump in and look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. We won't take all of them two verses at a time, but we'll, let's get a little running start. <clears throat> and he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Interesting question, right? So here, Jesus, he now begins heading south to Jerusalem. We see him doing what he's always done since verse 14 of chapter 1, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. It is here. This has been his pattern. He goes out, he gathers crowds, he teaches them the word, and this time 
the Pharisees come with another challenge, an issue of divorce. And so in the first century, most Jews were actually okay with divorce on some level. There were, there were just two main groups that kind of fought over what was okay for divorce. There was one group that was a more conservative one that said, okay, if your wife, um, if there was an indecency found in her, which was the language of the law back in Deuteronomy 24, they, didn't, they were arguing over what indecency was. And so the conservative group said, well, she cheats on you. She goes out, she's not faithful to you, you can divorce her, kick her to the curb. And, and then there was the other group that interpreted a little more loosely, you know. So, yeah, if she goes out and cheats on you, of course you have grounds for a divorce. But, you know, honey, the dinner was a little overcooked. I don't think this is going to work out. And so, and so you had these two groups that were, one was a little more liberal in their application, the other one was more conservative. Pharisees are coming in, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to offend somebody. And they know from Jesus' talking, he's not necessarily afraid to offend, but they want to get him stuck and either pit him against the law of Moses, or they want to get him caught up in this fist fight between these two groups. So at the end of the day, they're not really concerned about what Jesus is saying here. But, but as we read through, we're going to find Jesus throws them a curveball and, and he, he, he impresses on them the reality of his kingdom in a, in a completely different way. So, he gives the answer in verses 3 through 9. How, how does he respond? Well, he draws them out with a question, first of all, and then he has what I like to call a drop the mic moment where he, uh, he, he gives the question, they answer, and then he just gives them the truth from Genesis and, and walks away. There's no answer. No one can reply to it. So the question he asks is this, what does the law say? And, and they answer, as I mentioned before, out of Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gives a divorce provision. Um, but, but they really, they whiff on that question entirely. They whiff on it. Let's look in verse 3. He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So as Jesus takes them, not just to Deuteronomy, but back to Genesis, back to origins, back to the order before sin entered, how God designed marriage to be, he explains that this is the standard of God's kingdom, heterosexual, monogamous, and permanent. And then he emphasizes in verse 9, as we just read, if God's joined it together, man should not Separate it. Now, this takes everyone there by surprise. And quite frankly, it should take us by surprise. Um, Most Christians uh, believe from other passages there is an allowance for divorce under certain circumstances. I'm not wanting to address that tonight. What I want to address is what Jesus was shooting for, and it wasn't uh, a code of conduct for people. That's not what he was shooting for here. The Pharisees thought that they could turn him against the law or popular opinion. But by going back to creation, what what Jesus does is he raises the standard of marriage 
even higher. And it even shocks the disciples, really. Um, because once they get Jesus alone, they're, they're, they're thinking about what he's saying, and they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, you're making it tougher for us. <laughs> and so in verses 11 and 12, they question him again, like, Master, Messiah, can you tease that out for us a little bit? What, were you just being like upfront and bold of the Pharisees, and, and there, there's some other information here that you're not telling us? And so you look in uh, verses actually 10 through 12. And in the house, so they're, they're in the house now, away from this situation, the disciples asked him about this matter. <clears throat> you tell the, even though it doesn't say, you can read the tension in their voices. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Not exactly what they were hoping for. Again, Jesus, uh, setting the standard even higher than, than most of us or families that we've related to can, can achieve. Right? All of us have been touched by divorce in some way or another. So he says, don't get divorced with the express hope of, of remarrying and think that God's cool with that. Or, or if you are getting divorced in order just to get with someone else, and, and you think that's technically not adultery because you filed some forms with the courthouse? He says, you don't have to give account to the courthouse. You have to give account to God. And it's not about what a piece of paper says about your divorce. It's about what commitments you've made before the Lord that He's going to hold you accountable to. That's heavy. Now, here's, here's what I don't think Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying... Everyone who's remarried is in an adulterous relationship. I don't think he's going there. Um, the Apostle Paul gives some guidance later on in the New Testament about how to handle these situations when, when you become a Christian, you're in these tricky situations. So um, I don't think he's saying everyone's in an adulterous relationship if you're remarried. But here's what I think he is saying. Every divorce is a sin failure in God's eyes and a fall from the intended order. Every divorce is a sin failure in God's eyes and a fall from the intended order. And what happens is we get so used to living in a world that grades on the curve that we become just comfortable with it. We become whatever is you know, just a little bit better than normal. And, and we don't take time to look deeply into God's word and say, Lord, where are your standards at? So that Jesus is trying to... to Shock, I think, people into understanding the holiness of God. So, this first issue, what are we to take away from it? Don't get married? No, well, no, not exactly. Um, first of all, I think we're accountable to God for how we handle our sexuality. No matter what anybody says, no matter what your friends say, no matter what the courts of our nation say, you're accountable to God for how you handle yourself. You have to understand that. This is explicit in Scripture. God has designed marriage to be heterosexual, monogamous, permanent. No matter where our culture goes, this is God's standard. Okay, So just hold that in truth with this second one. And that is we, we fail at this. And we, we fail hard at this. Our sexual identity has become our 
God in many ways. It's become an idol. It becomes all that, that we hear about and we talk about a lot. Pornography, self-pleasure, fornication, divorce, adultery. Raise your hand if you've not been affected by any of those in any way possible. It's not possible. You know someone. You've been that person. Um, more than likely, both. Ever since the fall, our hearts have struggled to give up our sexual desires that run contrary to God's law, God's design. And the reason why Moses wrote Deuteronomy 24 is because we need to know how to cope with sinful states. We need to know how to, how to cope after we've fallen. Where, where's the mediation? How do, how do we get restored when we become less than perfect? And, and the law of Moses is a band-aid. Thankfully, we have the healing balm walking on the earth as we're observing it here. So, we have to remember, perfection is still the standard in God's kingdom. If your hand sins, cut it off. The disciples got this. In, in the parallel account in Matthew 19, the disciples came to the conclusion, it's better if we don't marry. It's just better if we don't, okay? If this is a standard, we're done. And, and Jesus says, well, certain people are gifted for that, but most of you all have sexual desire and you need to get married. So, so it's not avoiding the, the trial, avoiding the testing. So how do we handle it? So I'll continue on. We'll come back to that. Second, verses 13 through 16. This is a shorter passage. I'm going to read it all at once, and, and then we'll go through and, and talk through it. Starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So now they've, they've moved on. They're out of that situation. They're in another situation. And perhaps Jesus is teaching again. And people are wanting to bring their kids to Jesus. No doubt, maybe with ulterior motives, right? Let's just get my kid to just touch Jesus or, or be with Jesus, you know, snap a photo, get an autograph. Hey, we, know, we saw Jesus, you know, this is great. Um, and, so, and so, yes, I know there weren't cameras back then. Bear with me. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, people probably didn't have all pure motives here. Just Jesus, yeah, he's popular, he's great. And the disciples, being, being the entourage that they are, <laughs> step back, ma'am, sir. This is Jesus. You don't just take your cruddy kid up to Jesus and stick him on his lap. He's a busy guy. Okay? He, he's preaching. He's teaching. He's the Messiah. Right? Take a number. Step in line. Judas is over there collecting bills. Like, okay, 20 for you, 20 for you. Um, so they, they're not handling this right. And we have to remember something, too. Nowadays, you know, we get on Instagram, Facebook, we see pictures of cute kids, um, you know, playing around, having fun with their, with their mom. It's all a lie. Um, <laughs> we, we just kind of filter out all the good stuff to put online. And then the atomic diapers, like I just had to change before I came here. That's the norm. And, and they didn't have well-fitting huggies back then. Children in the first century were marginalized. Children 
were in every sense to be seen and not heard. Um, they, they were of no value to society in terms of productivity. And so um, they were not esteemed very highly. They were mouth to feed and they didn't produce anything. Nowadays, like I said, we kind of say, oh, cute kids, you know. Um, but that's not as much how people thought about them in these days. So again, um, the issue is, should Jesus be allowed, or should children be allowed to see Jesus? Should he, he have access, uh, or should they have access to him? And the answer Jesus gives in verse 14 is that, guess what? Another shocking statement. Children will inherit the kingdom of God. Children will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, now, we have to think about this. This is a bit confusing if we're going to take them literally. Okay, so verse 14, once again, um, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, so he was mad. He said to them, let the children come to me, don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then verse 15 is his explanation. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus sees a teachable moment, and he gives instruction, he gives an explanation. So, what's the explanation? I think it's just this. We must be childlike in order to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Because we don't need to be childlike in every way possible, right? My, my three-year-olds fight about the most petty things possible. And uh, my little daughter, Nora, got upset because her sister, Grace, was looking out her window in the car. <laughs> Daddy, Grace is looking out my window again. Nora, it's not your window. She can look out it. It's clear. Um, you know, it's just one of those moments. Um, so, so we have to think, how then are we to be like children in order to inherit the kingdom of God, in order to, in order to receive the kingdom that the Messiah is, is bringing to earth? How do we do that? Well, we must be childlike, and I think here's the key, in our dependence on God, in our dependence on Him. Think about it. Children, especially young ones, they need parents to feed them. Oftentimes, college ones need parents to feed them. <laughs> Mom, Dad, got a 20? Uh, I, I, I need food, and it can't just be food court food all the time. I need real food. Um, and, and so we... We're needy, and especially when we're young. And this is, I think, the context, right? Um, you know, parents aren't carrying their 16-year-old sons up and throwing them on Jesus' lap. These are, these are young children. And, and so think about how needy they are. Um, that's one of the things, as, as a recent father in the past couple of years, has been impressed upon me, how much our, our children just need parents to do everything for them. And, and in time, my job's not just to give but to equip. But I, I delight in giving. I love giving. I love it when they come to me and want affection. I love it when they want food and actually eat it. <laughs> I love it when one comes to me most of the time and, and they have an issue with their sibling and they're wanting me to resolve it. I don't like, I sinfully don't like being bothered with it sometimes, but it, it's an honor to have them come to me and say, Daddy, will you fix this? And, and as they grow, I, I love being their guide. Nora asks so many why questions. 
It's just this chain reaction. You know, I know when I answer one, it's going to come to the next one and to the next one. Then finally I just start saying because, and she stops. But, um, you know, it, it's, they need us for, for food, for sustenance, for re- resolution and conflict, for maturity as they grow. And then it clicked for me. That's how we are to be like children. That's how we inherit the kingdom of God. Not walking through the front doors and saying, God, I've been good enough. I was your obedient little child all the way through and I checked off every box and I was at every Sunday school and I I walked everything morally. No, we're needy. We're dirty. And we need someone to clean us up. That's how we enter the kingdom. Not our own two feet. Not with our head held high, but with our eyes gazing at the cross. So, what are we to take from this truth? I think one application is is that, just like the disciples, we want to be seen as important people. And, And I don't think this was ever more of a pressure than when I was in college. I mean, it, every day was seemingly a popularity contest for me. Who could get the best joke out or, or who could, you know, uh, who was I hanging out with on the weekends or whenever? And, and was there something going on that I'm not involved in or doing? And, and just always wanting to be that guy in the know, in the middle, um, and, and never have any issues or problems. That's such an idol for us. Um, I should say for you, I'm getting older. I'm 30 now, so um, it's not an idol for me anymore, of course. No, actually, even more so when you put me up in front of a church. Um, so we, we want to be seen as important. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't get, you don't get the kingdom until you get your need. Until you get your dependency. So we want to be seen as important, but we're extremely needy. So this is the point of the second one, I think. So, so again, just to recap, the first point here, marriage in God's kingdom is permanent. That's a high standard. We like to say, oh, we can deviate. Oh, there was a mistake here. Let's just wipe that out. No, marriage in God's kingdom is permanent. Secondly, humility in God's kingdom is essential. Humility in God's kingdom is essential. And now we'll look at the third one. I think this one ties the other two together. We'll read verses uh, 17 through 22 to start. So they're leaving again now. They're, they're heading towards Jerusalem once again, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This this account 
seems to prick my heart more than most because of the uh, allure of wealth and the things of this world particularly. The issue here is the man comes to him and says, how do I get eternal life? That's the big question, right? Some people, most people in our world, everyone wants eternal life. It's just they're not sure whether they want God or not in that. This guy comes to Jesus. He says, how do I get eternal life? How do I get to heaven? How do I live forever? How do I not have to see the effects of sin and death? So Jesus answers him in really a twofold answer. Um, he says, have you done all the commandments? And the commandments he lists, six of the Ten Commandments. And there are six that apply to interpersonal relationships. So um, just to recap, uh, Jesus, you know, he's teaching at another point, and he says, um, love the Lord your God. These are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so get those two in your head. Then you look back at the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, and, and you can see that the first four have to do with that connection between God, um, and then the last six have to do with the connection between people. Now, they're not completely exclusive, but those are, the, those are the emphases. And so here, Jesus zones in on those last six. Have you loved your neighbor? Have you done this? He said, yes, I have. I've checked off those boxes. I've done it. And then, this is, this is where Jesus kind of he, he kind of sets him up and then does the roundhouse. <laughs> and, and Jesus, again, roundhouse of love. So it's, it's not out of anger here. And verse 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. That's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now again, what Jesus is not saying is, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be a poor beggar out by I-90 asking for, asking for food. No, that's not what he means. He was doing evangelism here. He was looking at this rich young man. He was saying, what is the idol in his life that he needs to, to let go of in order for me to be on the throne of his life? For him, it was wealth. So he said, go, sell all that you have. He said that with, with such a heart of love and compassion for this young man. As we read these, we inevitably have to come to the conclusion, I'm not even half as good as this guy. You know, the young man, young man walks away dejected, sad, and Jesus drives his point home with the disciples, which is going to drive the point home with us, verses 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around. He said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wanted to drive a point home with them and with us. And just like 
nowadays may be slightly different than the first century. Rich people, you know, in our culture today, we see a rich person and we kind of despise them a little bit. We're kind of like, they're, in, they're, they're entitled, they have all that they need, da, 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 you know, so we kind of, we don't think very highly of rich people, unless we were around them or could be their friend, then we would think really highly of them. But, but the ones that, you know, we're not connected to, it's not a big issue. But in the first century, they were the ones that were seen as most successful. If anyone was going to get to heaven, it'd be the rich people. They could, they could somehow use their wealth, they could somehow use their power to accomplish what they wanted. And Jesus turns it on its head. This rich, moral guy was, was turned away by Jesus. And through his two statements here, Jesus is saying this. Earthly wealth is more prone to keep you from God's kingdom than getting you in it. Earthly wealth is going to be more prone to keep people from God's kingdom than getting them in it. So, again, his statement about the camel and the needle, I don't think we need to get hung up on that. You know, some people say it was a gate in Jerusalem is really small and you know, a camel has to hunch down and get through. I, I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about a camel doesn't fit through the eye of a needle. And rich people, guess what? They're not going to be prone to go to heaven because they're going to be relying on their riches and not the inheritance of Christ. I don't think it was an absolute statement, just like the cutting off of the hand. I think this is hyperbole. So, so this is his point. It's, it's practically impossible. And don't miss what he calls the disciples the second time around, right? Verse 24, right in the middle of it. Children. What did we just talk about? He's calling his disciples the very people that they had just turned away. They were turning away children. And he looks them square in the eye and he says, Children, even the best of your race cannot make it. So what are they left with? Verse 26 is the response Jesus was aiming for, the response he was shooting for, the response that every heart must have when we come to Christ. Verse 26 who then can be saved? That's the need. That's, that's the, the, the dependence upon God. The, the end of our rope. And for those of you who are Christians in here, you're familiar with that. You reached the end of your rope at some point, and it was, I, I'm done with myself. I can't do it. And for those of you who may not be Christians in here, well, I'm sure you've come to the end of your rope a lot with different things and been frustrated when life didn't work out. And I'm here just to repeat what, what Christ is saying is that if we want that eternal life, that satisfaction in Him, it has to come through Him because who then can be saved? And Jesus answers in 27 to our hope, to our encouragement. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Okay? That's not, that's not Joel Osteen's quote. He doesn't have that. Okay? He doesn't, it, it's not, all things are possible 
You can have a, a great, successful life and make lots of money and have children that obey and have stability and everything. All things are possible with God. Mm-mm. We miss that entirely. We miss the point if we go there. The point is this. You can be saved. You can experience salvation through Christ. And, and you can delight in it more than in anything else because of what God has done. He's done the impossible. He's done it through Christ. And this is where Jesus is going. He's going to Jerusalem to do this. That's why we read this passage, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And all those who followed were afraid. I get a kick out of that. And the disciples, they're close and they're amazed. All those who follow are afraid. Taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. He's, he's getting it through. This is the impossible thing God is doing. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, over to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is where Jesus was going. He had to have the disciples. He has to have us reach the end of ourselves. No, no more trusting in a better or more fulfilling partner for our lives. All you, all, you have all you need in Christ. No more seeking to promote yourself among your peers in order to feel important. You need Christ, and it's okay to acknowledge that need. In fact, you'll find people respect you more when you are honest about your shortfalls no more chasing after a better payday better grades more influence you can't achieve satisfaction through that this is where god desires to bring every person to look away from their deceitful desires their pathetic pride their their wasting wealth and to look to him in desperation and say i can't do this i can't and that's when jesus looks back and you, and me. And he says, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And he's telling the disciples that right there, we're going to Jerusalem to make the impossible possible. Because God became man in order to die on a cross for our sin. He's going to talk about being the ransom for many, as you'll hear about in the future. And that does two primary things for us. One, it removes the sin guilt that's against us. We can live in freedom. We can, we can have a history of divorce. Hear me out. This isn't a license to sin, but we can have a history of, of ugly living and not feel the guilt of that because it's in Christ. When we're hidden in Christ, our sin is from the, as far as the east is from the west. And so the wrath of God that was against us is put on Christ. And secondly, it breaks the power of sin. And that means I don't have to live that way any longer. I have the spirit in me, a new life that enables me to overcome these deceitful desires in my heart. And so we're just overwhelmed at the reality of what Jesus was doing on the cross. It's no accident Mark puts this narrative in the middle of Jesus' predictions about his death and resurrection. He's explaining 
its possibility through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.